I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. If you're a YouTube fan or even an occasional YouTube user, you're going to know today's guest and you're going to know him very, very well. His name is Dylan Johnson, one of the biggest cycling YouTubers. He's a highly experienced cycling coach, also a professional cyclist from North Carolina. He's over a decade racing and training experience, and he's competed in some of the toughest ultra-distance mountain bike and gravel races in the world. He is part of the Lifetime Grand Prix, and we see him on our screens in the likes of Unbound, Leadville, etc. However, what sets Dylan apart, it's his evidence-based approach to cycling philosophy, to coaching and to helping others. He uses peer-reviewed research to inform his decisions, and he's committed to helping the viewers and his clients reach their full potential. With over 150,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, Dylan has become a trusted source of information for cyclists of all levels, and we're really excited to have him on the podcast today. Before we dive in, here's just a little sample of what awaits you today. From the comments that I get on my YouTube channel, I think there's the whole range. I think there's there's people who, I've had comments from people who say, I don't even ride bikes, but I just enjoy your videos. <laughs> um, so if you ban the arrow bars for pros and not everyone else, you've completely thrown your safety argument out the window yeah. because if there's anybody who's, who's able to handle their bike on gravel with arrow bars, it's the pros. But I'm going to be honest, I think that the industry in general has gravel tire size wrong right now. Just based off of their HRV, it was not preset. They saw greater fitness gains than people in the preset group. And I was, I was like, man, this could, this could revolutionize training. Dylan, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I would say you're you're on the podium in terms of YouTubers, cycling YouTubers. Have you checked the stats? <laughs> on the on the podium. I mean, I don't know about that. There's uh, a, a lot of us individual cycling YouTubers are kind of around the hundred thousand to two hundred thousand subscriber range, and then of course there's GCN, which is way way off the front. No one's counting GCN though. <laughs> <laughs> I get. I mean, you can't even compete with them because they're they're basically a corporation. So. Yeah, like, and they're also clean shorts. They're very, like, I think it's, I don't know, when I look at traditional media, I look at the news, I look at, you know, a lot of traditional media outlets at times, not so much in the cycling space, but at times I actively feel those outlets are lying to me, that there's hidden agendas in. And I've talked with this before mm -hmm. on the podcast, whereas at least with individual creators, be they podcasters or YouTubers, I don't watch your stuff all the time and think, oh, Dylan's definitely right. But I never watch it and think, Dylan is deliberately lying to me. Like, I don't feel like you're deliberately misleading me. I think you represent information to the best of your knowledge at the time you create the video. Yeah. And let me just say, I don't think I'm definitely right about what I say. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very cautious about, um, you know, speaking in absolutes. And, and I hope this comes across in my videos, you know, when I'm talking about the scientific consensus on whatever I'm talking about, I usually try to say, you know, there's, there's some evidence that suggests this, there's some evidence that suggests this. I feel like the balance of evidence goes this way or this way, or there's not enough evidence. But instead of saying this is correct, I, I'm usually trying to talk about the balance of evidence and where I think it's, where I think it's leading. So I hope that comes across. Yeah. You land pretty evenly most of the time. I remember I had a podcast with 
Dr. Lat Mansour. He was uh, one of the sports scientists involved in HVMN Ketone Company at mm. roughly the same time you dropped the video on ketones. And I hadn't watched your video on ketones prior to doing my research. And I watched it and I was like, right now, I hope he's just not on a totally, like he's ever finding a bunch of research that I haven't found. And now I'm going to have to go back and research this all again. And it was basically the same. So I was like, all right, mm -hmm. this is pretty comforting to know. You're always going to find studies that, you know, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, that will back up whatever assumption you have. And then you have to start going, well, who funded these studies? How impartial are these studies? It's, yeah. it's a quagmire. Yeah, I mean... I hear a lot of people say, you know, you can you can find a study to support any opinion that you have, and then there, <laughs> then there you go. Again, that's why I go back to what it, what is the balance of evidence? You know, looking at meta analysis, looking at looking at you know all the research on a certain topic instead of just one study. Because absolutely, if you just look at one study and you cherry pick that one study to support what you already thought, as opposed to looking what at what the you know the research as a whole on this certain topic says you can you can definitely get led to the wrong conclusion and you know i have the chance to chat with a lot of world tour writers physiologists and stuff on the podcast and an interesting thing about the peer-reviewed data and studies that you know the masses are so obsessed with you know where's the data to show this like yumbo visma don't care about the effect of ketones on 500 athletes they care about the effect of ketones on primos roglic that's it they're not right. testing the, mm -hmm. the entire populace and going, well, what's the 45-year-old, you know, 100-kilogram rider? How is it affecting him in the last hour of his fondo? They just don't care. Yeah, they also they also don't care to let other teams know what the effect of ketones are. <laughs> yeah. <you> know? I mean... <laughs> You know, they're not, they're not, they're not doing whatever, whatever research they're doing, they're not doing it out of, you know, trying to bring knowledge to the sport. They're trying to win races. Cyclone, when I look at it now, it seems like everything is merging into one. There used to be these quite well-separated, delineated groups. We had roadies who never really got their ankles dirty in, you know, some mm -hmm. outliers like Wout and MVP had ride cross in the winter and everyone think they're freaks. And then you definitely didn't ride mountain bike. Now I'm looking around this room and I have a road bike, gravel bike and a mountain bike. And I'm like, what am I? I raced a mountain bike race two weeks ago, my first ever mountain bike race. Some mm -hmm. of the wildest shit I've ever seen, like... There's some cowboys in them mountain bike races. <laughs> I had a bit of punch to get into the single track first, mm -hmm. and then I just roadblocked it. <laughs> I just oh, roadblocked man. it. <laughs> you were that <laughs> guy. Like, you were I'm that on your guy. left, I'm on your right. Oh, yeah, it's man. Mad. You're probably pissing off a lot of mountain bikers out there. That's <laughs> It couldn't have been a worse course for me to annoy people on. Because mm. you get through the single track, so they'd kill themselves, like some real kamikaze, evil Knievel shit to try and pass mm -hmm. me on the single track. But then we got back onto a dirt road climb, and so I'm passing the same guys who just risked life and limb to pass me on the single yeah. track. I passed them again, and it's this, it's this whole thing. But it's a totally different sport, and I was so aware when I got into it how little I knew. Like a buddy mm -hmm. of mine hit me up afterwards, and he's like, oh, what's this, what pressure did you run your rear suspension? And I was like... You're meant to run pressure in your rear suspension. <laughs> nice. Yeah. How do you figure this stuff out when you're a total newbie in it? Oh man, I mean, I don't know. I've been I I started mountain biking and I've been I've been mountain biking since I was 12 years old and I'm 28 years old now. So, a long time and I don't know. I I guess you learn it over time. Some people are a lot more geeky than others. For example, you're talking about pressure and suspension. I, I set my suspension, but I wouldn't call myself a suspension nerd. There are suspension nerds out there that 
they really geek out about their suspension. I don't consider myself one of those. I'm probably more of a tire nerd. Anybody who listens to one of the two podcasts that I have talking about tires like every single podcast. So <laughs> so what's your go-to for pressure on suspension? I mean, it's so it's going to change depending on what, uh, what shock you have. But I think I have 150 PSI in my rear shock, which is roughly, I, I weigh 150 pounds. So they recommend that you put the pressure at the same, the same amount as your weight. But again, it's going to depend based on what shock you have. Yeah, because I found myself bottoming out quite a bit. Now, that's obviously because I had very little pressure in it. Stock pressure is running. Whatever came from the factory, that was the pressure I was going with. I'm blown away, though, but your scientific approach to gravel racing. And mm-hmm. I know most of your audience, I'm sure you can dive deeper, channel a little bit off air about just how intricate YouTube is in terms of analytics. Like I'm sure you can dive deep and get a sense of who is watching your videos. But I think big data, we, we mainly know who's watching this stuff. It's the majority of riders aren't world tour top end riders. They're a vast, vast minority. Mm-hmm. I always wonder with the, you know, push towards marginal gains and gravel, which is so entertaining to listen to, but is the majority of your audience are they majoring in minor things? Yeah, like are they paying too much attention to marginal gains when they should be getting off the couch and riding their bike? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, just <laughs> yeah, just not ordering like a a chicken red curry for <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think there's honestly, so from the comments that I get on my YouTube channel, I think there's the whole range. I think there's there's people who I've had comments from people who say, I don't even ride bikes, but I just enjoy your videos. (laughs) Um, and I've had, I have had comments from, uh, world tour riders actually on my videos. Um, I think Adam Hansen left a comment on one of my videos once and that that was pretty cool. So there, honestly, there's the whole range and I, I get pretty geeked out about marginal gains and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having a bit of fun with marginal gains, even when there's there's a lot of fitness being left on the table, like you could ride your bike an extra two hours a week, as well. But you know, I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, geeking out about marginal gains. Do you think you have single handedly slayed the spirit of gravel? I hope so, man. I I'm getting real <laughs> sick of the spirit of gravel conversation. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, I, I think the spirit of gravel was born in the U.S. I don't know if you guys have a spirit of gravel over there. Not so much. Yeah, our scene isn't as developed as yours, and I think it's something that in Ireland and or based in Ireland and Ireland and the U.K. I'll talk broadly about them because we're roughly the same sort of population and topography mm-hmm. of the landscapes. When we watch your gravel races like Unbound, it's these amazing flat meadows and prairies. The reality mm-hmm. of owning a gravel bike in Ireland or the UK is you're going up the side of a mountain. So it's a totally mm-hmm. different requirement. That's not as inclusive. Like one of the draws of gravel is it's inclusive. We can all ride it together. But honestly, like if you're not probably at least a cat two on the road to make that transition over to gravel in Ireland or the UK, you're riding up mm-hmm. some pretty steep pitches on off-road. And it's not that enjoyable and it's not that inclusive. It's quite exclusionary based on the terrain. But so many people just are fascinated with these YouTube videos of, you know, Belgian waffle rides and dirty Kansas that they get mesmerized and now everyone has a gravel bike. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so it it depends on the course here. I mean, we have such a variety of terrain in the US. You could have rolling hills in prairies like at Unbound, or you could have quite steep 
climbing terrain, uh, like Crusher and the Tusher, which is part of the Lifetime Grand Prix, is basically, uh, for the pros, it's an hour-long climb to start. You Ooh. drop down, you do a small little loop in the in the valley there, and then it's an hour and a half climb to finish. So I, I don't know how inclusive that is, but... So they just give Keegan the prize money before they start, or how do they figure it out? Oh, now? they should. It's the perfect... It's Every every race is good for Keegan, but th- I think that race he won by over 10 minutes last year. It was ridiculous. Jeez, he knocked shit out of Lachlan over in uh, Cape Epic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that on uh, on my podcast too. So I was, this is no offense to Lachlan. Lachlan beat me at every single race that he didn't have a mechanical at last year. Super good rider. But man, if I was Keegan, like I don't, you know, just trying to decide who to go to Cape Epic with. And it's like, okay, you know, we can get Lachlan to go with you. I'd, I'd just be like, man, I'm going to stay here in Arizona and train, you know? Is the gap that big, yeah? Well, I mean, I think that had Keegan been with either Blevins or Matt Beers, and that was their team, I think he would have won. Because uh, he's just so, I mean, I just came from Sea Otter Classic, and he, I mean, he won Sea Otter. Blevins was there. He's just such a strong rider. I don't I don't think there's any reason why he can't win Cape Epic if he has the right teammate. Not presupposing his motivation, but Lachlan's such a huge brand mm-hmm. that there's maybe a brand building element for Keegan and ticking yeah. the box with sponsors to go and do that with Lachlan. Yeah, I mean, definitely could. Definitely could. It, it's it's interesting, Cape Epic. Most of the time, uh the teams are on the, you know, they're on the same bike. They've got all the same sponsors. You know, Blevins and Matt Beers were both on Specialized. And Lachlan and Keegan, I think the only sponsor that they have in common is Rafa, which maybe yeah. Rafa is the one that funded it. So, yeah, I mean, that could definitely be the case. But I've had Alex Hales on the podcast a couple of times, and it was interesting chatting to him while he was under contract with EF. And then he's like, get me back on like when my contract expires and we'll have a totally different chat. So oh, he came really? back on when the contract expired. And he said it was so difficult. So you're going to, you know, an unbound and everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, why is Alex Hales not in the top 10? Or why is he not in the break? Why is he not in the top five? But he said the reality of being with EF, it meant that because him and Lachlan have become this brand, that mm-hmm. Whoop would have a commercial they wanted to shoot in the Swiss Alps. So the team would be like, oh, send Alex over there. So he's flying to the Swiss Alps and sitting in like an ice cold bathtub trying to do some advert for a woo. And then they'd be like, okay, an investment banker in Munich wants us to do uh, a riot. And he's a big contributor to the team. Oh, send Alex. So he's like, mm. it could be two weeks before one of these races, just bouncing around Europe, going to these, you know, sponsor gigs. And then he comes to the race with very little proper training, doing real mm. bad nutrition, late nights, travel, not a leg. And so while technically World Tour, he said the last couple of years of his contract, he didn't know what hat he was. He didn't know if he was the mascot, if he was the, some sort of member of staff, or if he was a rider. I'd imagine Lachlan's kind of in that position at the moment where maybe his form doesn't represent his yeah. very best winning tour of Utah style form. Yeah, I mean, that could very well be the case. He's still He's still in great form, but there's clearly a difference between Lachlan's form and Keegan's form, at least with the contract that Lachlan has right now. I mean, you could be absolutely right about that. I'm sure. I'm sure EF has him doing a lot of a lot of things. Well, like I'm going to Kenya for migration gravel race this year. I'm sure he's still going to kick absolute shit out of me out there. So it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
for the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends, simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. Let's talk some geeky wind tunnel and how you did manage to kill the spirit of gravel, uh, if it ever <laughs> okay. did exist in the first place. You had your gravel bike, or I'm, I'm on the same gravel bike as you at the moment, the nice. Factor Ostro. It's a sweet machine. Mm -hmm. How are you finding yours? I love it. And and this is this is 100% the truth. This is not the sponsorship talking. If I could have any gravel bike on the market uh, and I wasn't sponsored and I had to, you know, pay for it with my own money, I would get the Ostro Gravel. And it's simply because it's basically the Ostro, which is an aero road bike with more tire clearance. It's, it's like everything you want from an aerodynamic gravel bike. They checked all the boxes. Um, and then on top of that, they've got the cleanest aero bar cockpit set up for a gravel bike that I see on the market. So I'm super happy with it. Sean Kelly, you know, one of the goats, he has a great quote about the, the best bike you'll ever ride. It's the one you're currently paid to ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're talking bringing the gravel bike into the wind tunnel and I honestly didn't understand this until I started taking part in some gravel races mm -hmm. last year I kind of dipped the toes this year more of an expansive calendar and in so many of the races compared to Cat 1 road races it's almost like a time trial the amount of air I'm hitting the amount mm -hmm. of time actually in the wind on my own it makes such a difference to think about aero as opposed to just rolling around in the pack in a peloton yeah. where you're getting shelter. And those moments you are sticking your head in the wind, they're race winning moments. But mm -hmm. on the gravel bike, you know, Rift last year, I had a mechanical, uh, my DI2 froze. I would say I was 85 to 90% of the race pushing wind on my own. It was not fun. Yeah, you're going to be pushing wind a lot more in a gravel race than you are in a road race. And and honestly, the speeds of these gravel races is getting so high. I'm sure most of your audience uses kilometers per hour. They're 35 to 40 kilometers per hour at some of these gravel races now. So it's a huge factor. And I would say that out of all the marginal gains, it's the biggest factor, you know, over um, weight, 
tire rolling resistance, drivetrain efficiency. Aero is the most important one for gravel, most gravel races, in my opinion. You're kind of a self-proclaimed, and if you go into your YouTube channel, there's so many good videos on tire choice, tire size, and it seems to be a conversation that I had uh, Sofia Gomez on a couple of weeks ago, and she said it's just like every week, people are like, what tires are you using today? What tires are you using today? <laughs> yep. What's the considerations when someone, because we're kind of getting over in Europe, and you know, I'm aware that we have like even 40% of our listeners are US as well, so it's coming into gravel season right now, if not started in quite a few places. When someone's looking at their event and they're thinking to themselves, okay, what tires should I choose for this event? What considerations are you taking into mind? Yeah, I mean, there's all the typical ones. How much how much road is there? How much gravel is there? How much um, how chunky is the gravel? You know, climb, how much climbing? How much descending? Is there single track? All of that. But I'm going to be honest. I think that the industry in general has gravel tire size wrong right now. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be referencing what how how mountain biking and road cycling has come a long way in their tires in the past few years. You know, 20 years ago, roadies were on what 20 millimeter tires. What 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 were you on when you were racing pro road? I used to time trial with a 19 on the front and a 21 on the back. Exactly, and that was like the idea then. Like you mixed up these tire choices, but 21 to 23 was pretty standard for criteriums. Yeah, At always 140 psi. Like you didn't even right. question that. Always 140 psi. Yep. <laughs> so now look where the world tour teams are at now. I mean, a lot of them are on 28s now, and they're running what 70 psi. So it it's quite quite a bit different on the mountain bike side. You know, guys used to run 1.9, 2.0 tires. Now you know now Nino's only on 2.4s. Like that's all he runs. So. Tires in both mountain bike and road have just gotten wider and wider and wider, and it's because it's faster. And I think that we're just going to see the same thing happen in gravel. Gravel tires are going to get wider and wider and wider, and it's because it's faster. And and this isn't that hard to test. I, I don't know why more people don't do this. All you have to do is go to a section of gravel, ride it at a certain power output, you know, switch tires ride it at the same power output, and then you'll be surprised by how much faster you go when you put the wider tires on. This blows people's mind when I tell them this. But but these homemade tests are unbelievable. I was getting into time trialing back in the day when I was trying to make my way through cycling. And you know, I was coming through as a broke student, so I had very little cash. Definitely wind tunnel testing, it's not very accessible now. It was a lot less accessible like seven, eight, nine years ago. I just got a bunch of TT helmets from all my friends went up to the top of an incline, locked myself into position, got a push start for my buddy in helmet A, marked it with chalk down the bottom where I stopped rolling, came back up, same position, same push, marked it in chalk with helmet B. It's pretty rudimentary, but you can draw some conclusions from that. And you're like, okay, well, this is a pretty good helmet. Like, I'm not saying this is perfect science by any means. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if you want to have a rough idea of whether something is faster or slower you know, you can test it. You don't just have to guess or just look at what the competition is running. I think what most people do is they just look at what the competition is running and say, okay, I'll run the same thing because they must be right. <laughs> but so there's so many buckets there. You're talking about percentage of tarmac versus gravel, how how technical it is or in terms of how sharp it is. Puncture resistance, does it need sidewall puncture resistance? But does the, do these tire choices then fall into a number of buckets for you that you have two or three go-to tire choices? Or are you literally 
playing with 15 or 20 different tire choice options. I have a favorite gravel tire right now that I use for the vast majority of gravel races. I won't use it for every single gravel race, but my go-to tire is the Specialized Pathfinder Pro, and they just started making it in a 47 millimeter, and that's what I've been running. It's probably what I'll run for 85% of the gravel races I do this year. And then for some of the other races that maybe have more road, uh, I might run the Challenge Strada Bianchi in the 40 millimeter because it's quite a fast tire, but it punctures easy. So I, I don't have I don't have 20 different tires I'm choosing from, but I it's more that I have a, a select few that I really like. And I don't have a tire sponsor, by the way. So so I I try a bunch of different tires and I will give you my honest opinion on them. Is there a big advantage to not having a tire sponsor? Yeah, the big advantage is that you can run the best tire. I actually kind of feel bad for certain riders that have certain tire sponsors, to be honest with you, because it seems to me that there are some companies that are really nailing it on their mountain bike tire and really dropping the ball on their gravel tire, and then vice versa. There's some companies that are nailing it on the gravel, dropping the ball on the mountain bike. The Lifetime Grand Prix has both mountain bike and gravel. And I, you know, some riders, I just I just feel bad for them that they have to run these certain tires for certain races. So your Pathfinder, say Pathfinder 44 is your go-to? 47. 40, 47? So you're embracing this wide already. I test, I, I test this. I test this and it's faster. And that blows people's mind. When you, when you tell them 47, it blows their mind. They're like, there's no way that's faster. There's no way that's faster. Try it for yourself. <laughs> there's, a, there's a call to action for our listeners now. Um, what are you running inside this? Are you going with sealant? Are you going with inserts? Mm-hmm. What's your, your game day setup? Yeah, I run the Silka tire sealant. Um, to be honest, I think that it, it's probably the most puncture resistant sealant on the on the market. There's there's trade-offs with that though. It does dry out quickly, but for a race day sealant, it works amazing. Um, and then I do do uh Vittoria tire inserts. So when you're running low pressure, which you should run low pressure because low pressure is not only more comfortable, it's faster. But when you run that low pressure, you do run the risk of hitting the rim and potentially getting a puncture. And Silka have that cool, uh, I'm sure you know about it for listeners, the cool tire pressure calculator up on their website. Yeah. I love that thing. That, it's, it's amazing how well that thing works. You know, I'll test different pressures as well, and I'll start with what Silka tells me to run, and then I'll drop it a few PSI, and I'll put it, I'll, I'll raise it a few PSI, and usually, usually the Silka tire pressure calculator is pretty close. Um, what's your strategy if you do flatten a race? What are you bringing with you? Uh, I got a Dynaplug and a CO2. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I rarely bring a tube with me because usually in a gravel race, if you have to put a tube in, you're going to get another flat and your race is kind of over. I don't recommend that for people. I think people should bring a tube, but I I usually don't. Have you tried Muckoff's BAM product? I have not. I've not heard about this. I've been playing around. It's pretty cool. It's a sealant and a CO2 all in one canister. So it's just, you literally have it strapped to the back of the gravel bike. I'm not sure if it's application on race day because i guess you're going to have fresh sealant in anyway so if you get a slice yeah. you would hope the sealant you have in the tire catches it it's kind of like fix a flat on a car right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. but like out training where i'm typically running wheels that maybe the sealant's a little bit drier than it should be and i get a flat and the sealant doesn't catch it you just hit this and it's like fresh coat of sealant and the co2 all in one go and it's like boom if that doesn't get you home it's like taxi mm. i'll have to check that out 
Yeah, I've only started it like two, three months ago, and it's it's pulled me out of a. It just saves your day because, like, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, yeah, it's great having a tube with you and stuff, but oh, it's fucking sealant everywhere, all over your hands, all over your clothes. <laughs> yeah, trying to pop that thing back on the rim. It's like, oh, your day is ruined. You know, speaking of uh, speaking of muck off, I don't know if you caught the series that I did with Adam Karen of uh, Zero Friction Cycling. No, I haven't seen it. I'll check it out. The Australian guy. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, he's just talking about drivetrain efficiency. He's talking about he, he tests different lubricants and all of that. Um, but he talks about muck off as one of these brands that their marketing claims don't line up with his test results. This is their ludicrous lube. Are you talking about this? Their yeah. one purportedly mm-hmm. Ghana used it for the world error record. Yeah, he he. So he what he does is um, he tests for longevity. Um, and he puts the lubricant on the chain and then he sees how long it takes the chain to wear. Because if the chain is wearing quickly, that means there's a lot of friction in the drivetrain. So not only does a fast lubricant save you watts, but it also increases the lifespan of your drivetrain. But whenever he tests the muck-off products, the drivetrain does not last long. It wears quickly, which means there has to be friction in the system. So He's very skeptical of Muckoff's marketing claims. So was they're not publishing their data or they're not showing how I've, I've never dug into it too deep. I, you should have him on the podcast. I'm, I, so I, you know, I don't know if, off the top of my head here, but you, he would be a great guest to have on the podcast because he can go on and on about this nerdy drivetrain efficiency stuff forever. Hope, hopefully the listeners are into that, but yeah. And it does make such a difference. Like, there's full podcasts out there. Like, anytime I listen to Josh from Silica, mm-hmm. it seems like he has endless conversations about chain lubes versus waxes. And it's, it's like, crazy. how <laughs> many hours can you talk on this subject <laughs> so passionately? I know. Yeah. So, so, Josh has had Adam on the podcast. And if you, if you go and listen to on the Marginal Gains podcast, if you go and listen to those episodes, it is amazing how long they can talk about chain loop. I mean, yeah, hours. <laughs> like, I suppose we better touch on it since we're on the subject. But is there a, do you have a go-to chain? I've been rocking the Ceramic Speed UFO one. How many watts might giving away there? No, you're not. You're probably not giving away any watts. That's a great one. Um, that one, and then also I use Silka's Wax Chain as well. Uh, I try, I've got a Shimano drivetrain on my gravel and road bikes. So the Shimano Durace chain is very fast, but I've got a SRAM drivetrain on my mountain bike. And instead of running a SRAM chain, which is notoriously slow, I'll run a KMC usually. What's the deal with SRAM? Like the dogs on the street know SRAM make the slowest chains in the world. Surely their head of product is aware of this. Yeah, I don't I I don't know what the deal is. I don't know why they can't figure that out. And And what's baffling too is that the the higher end SRAM chains, the SRAM red chains seem to be slower than the SRAM force chains. So if you have a SRAM drivetrain and you need you need to run that SRAM chain, go with the force chain. Don't go with the red chain. We do have that weird phenomenon in other areas of cycling as well, where you look at helmets, and there's probably an inverse correlation between the amount of cash you spend on a helmet and how aerodynamic it is. Like the really mm-hmm. cheap helmets with the really shit ventilation. I've seen so many studies that they perform quite well. And Mm -hmm. as we started innovating, we innovated more around safety and ventilation for a long time than we did aerodynamics. So we actually lost a lot of those aero properties. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a point that Josh brought up um, 
when I was talking to him too. Yeah, uh, some of these super high ventilated helmets are they're I mean that's that's not a very aerodynamic shape at all. So and 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 I think they're I think they're starting to realize that because there are so many aero helmets on the market. But uh, helmets is one of those areas where it's very individual. So just because one helmet is faster on one person does not mean it's going to be faster on you. So that makes it very hard to say that one helmet is the fastest helmet, right? It, it's just very individual. Well, this is why I'm so skeptical of these marketing claims from Specialized. We're making the fastest helmet in the world. Like on the national track team, like I had a chance to go to the wind tunnel plenty of times and try now helmets. And like even from season to season, as my body changed shape, helmet A wasn't as fast this year as it was last year on me. Like it's so individual. It's unbelievable. So to say that one helmet is the same for me who's six foot two and 80 kilograms and you who's less than 80 kilograms by a significant amount. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. I, I, yeah, you can't make that claim that, that this helmet is the fastest. And, and it's, it's dubious to make that claim for other products too, because the, you know, the whole system has to work together. But we're in a space where it needs some sort of independent arbiter to come in because you can make these wild claims. Like you see bikes that are going in fully production ready, painted up into the wind tunnel and they're going in for testing. It's like, you're not going in for testing. Your bike is fully sprayed up and it's ready to go. There's no (laughs) testing getting done here. This is a production ready bike. Mm -hmm. And then they fire like 600 different yaw angles at this bike until they get one yaw angle that it performs well under. And then that's the marketing headline, like the fastest bike ever made. It's like, oh, it's such a bullshit claim. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways they can spin the data to make it look like it's more impressive than it actually is. The, the obvious one is that, you know, testing it at a higher speed than people actually ride at will, you know, those, those watt savings will just go through the roof as, you, as the speed increases, so... You made a great point on a recent video. Uh, I'm not sure which video. It might have been your aerodynamic gravel video mm-hmm. where people that are slower make the judgment that maybe aero gains aren't worth it because the watt saving is significantly less, but they fail mm-hmm. to factor in that they're going to be on course for much longer. So a smaller mm-hmm. watt saving actually amounts to a greater overall time saving. Yeah, so this is this is pretty shocking to people when I tell them. And I had some people actually message me after that video saying, I, I think you got the calculations wrong. And I and I said, No, the calculations aren't wrong. This is this is correct. And and actually in one of specialized's wind tunnel videos, they explain this phenomenon. But so in my in my gravel uh aero video, I talked about savings at unbound, and I think I was talking about how if you go from the hoods to the drops, it would save you nine minutes over over the unbound distance if you were going, I think it was 35 kilometers per hour. Now, 35 kilometers per hour is reasonable for the pros at unbound, but it's not reasonable for your, your everyday cyclist who's just trying to finish unbound. So that cyclist is probably doing 25 kilometers per hour. And that cyclist would probably assume aero doesn't really matter. I'm going so slow anyway. But actually, that rider would save 12 minutes over the unbound distance, even though they're saving far fewer watts, they're just out on the course for so much longer. And what's the difference if someone moves down from drops onto aero bars? Yeah, so the I believe that the drops were a 13 watt savings at 35 kilometers per hour over the hoods, and then going down onto aero bars was over 40 watts savings. Holy shit, that's big. 
It is big. It is big. So, you know, it gets into this whole conversation about spirit of gravel and, you know, whether you should be running aero bars or not. Um, I don't know. I've always just been a, if it's faster, I'm going to do it kind of guy. <laughs> that's always been my primary consideration. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatelis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. One of the wildest decisions I've seen in a long time is the decision from Unbound to... When I initially read it, I thought I read it wrong because they stopped the pro elite riders using aero bars, but it's okay for the age groupers and you know the rest of the field. I'm like, I'm sure you've had the experience of being on a group ride and someone who's a newbie triathlete comes out on the group ride on their aero bars and you're like, oh dude, like that's <laughs> not safe. Like don't mm-hmm. be in the aero bars. You're, you know, you're a newbie. This is like pretty dangerous stuff. Right. And then you add in gravel to the mix. I don't think it's a great safety idea to allow newbies on aero bars, on gravel, like full stop. But then to ban the only guys in the race who are arguably capable of using this equipment safely from using them, it just seems so bizarre. So this is I, this might be a little controversial, but I, I will give you my opinion on that whole ruling. So the, the claim for banning aero bars is safety, right? So if you ban the aero bars for pros and not everyone else, you've completely thrown your safety argument out the window yeah. because if there's anybody who's who's able to handle their bike on gravel with aero bars, it's the pros. So the reality of the situation is they didn't ban aero bars for safety. They banned aero bars because certain pros were whining about the aero bars for so long that finally they just caved. They're like, all right, fine, we'll do it. We'll ban aero bars. <laughs> So it 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 really it really was not safety. It was it was just certain pros whining about it. It's been very controversial, and it just seems like one of those subjects that keeps on and on. Was it last year? Pete Stetna sent the email to everyone prior to Unbound. Yeah, it was. If he wanted to get something going, he should have started the email chain sooner because I think it was like a week before the race or something. But yeah, he he sent an email out to a lot of riders. Uh, I was part of the email chain and he was saying, you know, let's all, I, I don't even think he was saying let's all not do aero bars, but he was trying to get a consensus on whether we were going to use aero bars or not. Because I think Pete Stetna, he's not anti-aero bar, but he's kind of an aero bar flip-flopper where it's like, okay, is it cool to run aero bars at this race? Okay. Oh, it's not cool. Okay, I won't run them. Whereas like people like me, I'm just, it's like if they're not against the rules and they're an advantage, they're going to be on my bike, right? And then people like Jeff Kabush is like, I will never run aero bars ever. But anyway, so kind of the consensus after that email was that, okay, we're not going to run aero bars. Uh, but then, you know, the the Dutch mafia, which Ivar Slick, who 
who won the race as part of the Dutch mafia, um, they, they didn't care. They were like, we brought our air bars. We're going to run them. You know, they, they didn't care about the spirit of gravel at all. They were just there to win the race. So, so Pete Stetna did end up putting these little mini aero bars on his bike. And I don't know, it's the whole thing. I didn't really chime in, to be honest with you, because I already knew I was running aero bars and I didn't care what anybody else was doing. Gravel is changing though. And to just be stuck in the mud and refuse to change with it, I think is a little bit short-sighted. Like there wasn't an incentive structure to look for these marginal gains 10, 15 years ago. Gravel was still is a niche community. It's a niche of a niche mm-hmm. sport. Like, let's not pretend it's, you know, soccer or it's American football. It's still we're playing in a small corner of the world. But the incentives are starting to come. Like, Lifetime Grand Prix this year, it's prize money for the first time. And then, mm-hmm. outside, I know so much was made about the prize money of that. But actually, if you broke down how much prize money there is there, it probably hardly covers your travel to the races. And it definitely didn't cover your equipment for the season. Yeah, it's so... $250,000, which is the total prize purse, sounds like a lot of money. And then you break it down, uh, and that's split amongst 10 women and 10 men. So it gets to be quite a small amount. And I think the winner only takes home 25000 I was talking to Alexi Vermeulen, who got second place in the Grand Prix last year, which means he would have won, I think, $20,000. He said he thinks his expenses for going to all the Grand Prix races and, and the lodging and food and all of that was probably close to 40000 So he didn't even break even with the prize money. Now, that being said, he's making a lot of money from his sponsors. Don't get me wrong, but the prize money is less impressive when you break it down for sure. But what Lifetime has done, it's created this knock-on effect where now there's attention on these mm-hmm. races. You know, exactly. big YouTube series, you know, there's a lot of Lifetime guys who've been on the podcast and other big podcasts. And because of that, now there's dollars coming from brands and brands mm-hmm. are getting behind, you know, even stages, what bike are boat sponsors on this podcast as well. And it's largely because they're seeing that pop in the whole gravel scene so i think lifetime they definitely have to be commended for putting that chunk of cash in because it's really mm-hmm. popularized and given a lot of opportunities to i'm gonna say guys who couldn't have made it but guys who would have had a difficult career path if they had a chosen world tour yeah a hundred percent i i totally commend lifetime for what they've done i mean they have put so much attention on u.s gravel racing with the series and take the prize money out of it. There is so much money in U.S. gravel right now. If you're if you're a racer that's at kind of the domestic level, you know, you're not quite world tour on the road or you're not quite world cup on the mountain bike and you're, you're in the U.S. and you're thinking, okay, how am I going to make the most money? Which I don't think that's how most racers think, but let's just say you're thinking that. Um, <laughs> and you're like, okay, I could do road domestically. I could do mountain bike domestically. I could do this gravel thing. It's not even a competition. I think that if you're at that domestic level in the U.S., gravel is where you need to be if you want to make a career out of it. Yeah, and Europe's going the same way. We've gravel earth series around mm-hmm. Europe as well now, which I think is kind of a sort of a desperate plea to copy the Lifetime Grand Prix series. Interestingly, we have more UCI involvement than Mm -hmm. you guys have in Europe. And I think gravel doesn't need the UCI really. I think the UCI needs gravel at the moment. It's a weird dynamic. Yeah, it is. It is a bit weird. And, and, you know, the, the roots of gravel racing were very much anti, uh, anti USA cycling and anti UCI, so there, there is still that culture in it where, you know, 
I think that gravel racers, both pro and not pro, they really don't, they don't want USA Cycling to be involved and they don't want the UCI to be involved. And Lifetime didn't involve either one of them with this Grand Prix. And I think most people are happy about that. Uh, Dylan, just to finish up, one of your most popular videos on YouTube and time again, when we survey the audience on email list, the big challenge people have is A, they're struggling to balance multiple things in their life. By that, I mean they're struggling to balance family, work Mm -hmm. with training. And as a byproduct of struggling to balance them, weight is often something they really struggle with. And I know one of your most popular videos is around cutting weight for cyclists. Mm-hmm. what's the core information in that that I know that's a couple of years old now that you would still stand by or what's your amended version of that advice to people looking to chop a bit of weight now look like? I think, yeah, I think that that uh, weight loss video probably needs an update because it is a couple of years old, but I, I haven't changed my general stance on that. I stand behind a lot of the research that supports this kind of low calorie density approach and low calorie density just means the foods that you're eating are low in calorie density. So there's not a lot of calories in a large volume of food. And what that essentially means is that you're going to be eating unprocessed, healthier foods, which is also better for your health. These unprocessed foods are lower in calorie density. And the reason, the reason why that approach seems to work is because they just take up more volume and leave you more full while you're consuming less calories. And there is research to back that up. I'm not just pulling that out of my ass there. There is research to, to back that up, you know, give people two meals. One is low calorie density. One is high calorie density. They consume more calories when they do the high calorie density. And then that turns into weight loss or weight gain down the road. So I, I stand by a that approach. And I think that if people are counting calories or they're trying to restrict, eventually they're going to fail because it's just, it's impossible to live in a state of hunger. Uh, you, you just, you can do it for a while. But, but is that okay though? Like sustainability is so fashionable now and trendy and everyone's like, oh, you know, that eating pattern's not sustainable. And it's like, okay, well, that's cool. But also a friend of mine saving for a mortgage right now and he saves 90% of his monthly income saving for his mortgage. That's not sustainable. But it gets a large chunk of cash saved in a short space of time, and then mm-hmm. he can move back to a pattern that's sustainable. Is there anything wrong with a similar dietary approach where it's excessive calorie restriction and then just going back to maintenance calories? Well, I think it depends on what your goal is. I mean, is your goal to cut weight for a race and all you care about is being lightweight for that one race and you don't care about what your weight is afterwards, then I mean, I think you could make the argument for something like that. But if you want to be at a healthy weight for your entire life, you need to find something that you can maintain for your entire life. So, I mean, it it depends on what your goal is, is what I'd say. We've such a unique relationship in a very bad way with weight and cycling. I I came up racing with a French team. Um, we literally have it'd be like the FBI raiding your house. Like the director would burst <laughs> in at unknown times mm-hmm. searching for carbohydrates around the house. And like mm-hmm. we'd be stuffing croissants into the washing machine and putting dirty clothes in on top of them. That mm-hmm. was our hiding place. Everything, baguettes, croissants, all into the washing machine with dirty kit on top of them and he didn't look in there. A lot of that has seeped down from, you know, French amateur level into, you know, cut one, cut two, cut three. And you see guys who are just totally fanatical about weight. Yeah, I mean, I so I've never been on a, on a road team like that that had that culture, but I've had friends who are, you know, 
have have been in that culture and in that culture right now. I did have a roommate who's he's a professional road racer right after college. We would have a competition every morning where we'd weigh ourselves and see who weighed less. <laughs> Healthy. <laughs> yeah. And then later that day we'd have another competition to see who rode more miles that day. So it was <laughs> How, on the flip end of that one, how high have you played around with your carbohydrate intake per hour? Uh, during racing? Yeah. Or even experimenting and training? I'm usually around 90 to 100 grams per hour. I know that there are riders that are pushing that beyond that. It's probably something that I should play around with. I, If I go really high, I do start to get GI issues. So, and it, it when you're when you're doing that too, it is important that you've got the optimal ratio of certain carbohydrates like maltodextrin to fructose. Cause for example, if you were to just do a hundred grams per hour of straight maltodextrin, you'd be much more likely to get GI issues than if you were to have, um, a split between the two in the optimal ratio. And when you say you're 90 to hundred grams per hour, are you tracking that just off the food labels or are you using the, you know, biometric sensor like super sapiens? No, I'm not using super sapiens. I do want to get my hands on, uh, on super sapiens, I have used a continuous blood glucose monitor, but it was not super sapiens. And I didn't find it that user-friendly because I could only look at the data after the ride. But on that note, I, this is, this is something that I bring up quite frequently on podcasts. When we start talking about blood glucose monitors, blood glucose monitor is cool. And I think there's application for it, but what I think would revolutionize training just like the power meter revolutionized training is if they came out with a continuous blood lactate monitor. That's what I want to see. And as soon as a continuous blood lactate monitor is available, I'm buying it. And the reason is because there would be no need to ever do an FTP test again. You could see, and you don't even need to know what your FTP is. You can just see if you're over your lactate threshold or not in real time and you can you could do a zone two ride perfectly it would be incredible have you heard of this idea of meta stress no what is this people are getting stressed out about the idea of how stressed they are so they'll <laughs> wake up i don't know uh-huh. <laughs> this, this is an actual real phenomenon i've had mm-hmm. like some of the super sapient sports scientists and so on they're talking about you know you wake up and you look at your stress level on your whoop score and the idea mm-hmm. of knowing what stress level you're at is actually contributing to that stress level and I mm-hmm. find the wearables problematic for a number of reasons. Like, you know, it's great to know my, you know, HRV is elevated and I should take an easy day. But if I'm on day four of an eight day stage race and it's telling me recovery very poor, all of a sudden straight away I'm on the back foot. Like an attack goes early in that stage. It's in my head. Like, you know, yeah. cyclists are hypochondriacs anyway. Like when mm-hmm. in the days and rim breaks, like I'd always be in a stage race my brake's definitely rubbing. It's definitely something rubbing. Like, I feel like I'm creeping. Like, there's something going on here. But to know for a concrete fact that I haven't recovered well, like, that would totally mess my head up. It'd scramble my systems. Yeah, if you do wear a Whoop or another wearable, it's probably a good idea to just not look at it on race morning um, so you don't have that in your head. I mean, I I agree. I I actually did a video on the Whoop strap, and I did a part of that video was just about HRV, training in general. And it got me pretty excited seeing some of this research on HRV training. For example, one study that comes to mind is where they had one group follow a preset training plan, and then they had another group follow 
a training plan that was solely based on their HRV. So if they woke up that morning, let's say they were using whoop. If they were in the green, they were going to do intervals. If they were yellow, they were just going to do a zone two ride. And if they were red, they were just going to take the day off, right? Something like that. That's not exactly how the study went, but for, for simplification's sake, that's, that's kind of what they did. And the group that did the HRV training plan based off, just based off of their HRV, it was not preset. They saw greater fitness gains than people in the preset group. And I was, I was like, man, this could, this could revolutionize training. And then I use the whoop. I, by the way, I've got a whoop strap on right now and I do, I do use it, but I will say that I, I, I started using the whoop strap and sometimes the recovery score or my HRV that morning or my resting heart rate that morning, it just didn't line up with how I felt on the bike. I would have green days where I felt awful and I'd have red days where I felt actually pretty good. So in practice, it didn't seem to work as well. I've had Dirk Freel from Training Peaks on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And for me, Super Sapiens, Whoop, it's a lot of data. And when you think your target customer is typically that time crunch customer is trying to balance many different things. I think the next iteration of all these wearables needs to be from here's a bunch of data to here's the application of this data. So you log into mm-hmm. your training peaks and maybe I have two by 20 minutes threshold schedule today. And there's like almost an assistant coach that's underneath us. Like based on your wearable data, we suggest you amend that to two by 12 minutes. And you can go, yeah, cool, apply. And it changes your training plan and like redistributes your training stress across the rest of the week or something. But at the moment, it's like like you coach uh, a number of athletes. It, it's mm-hmm. very, very difficult unless an athlete is maybe world tour or paying super high price point on their training plan for them to give you data on the day and for you to reflect that on their training plan instantly, especially with time zones and stuff. So there's definitely, I think they're useful tools, but the next generation of them, I think is going to be a big game changer. Yeah, just waiting for AI to replace the whole coaching business. It's going to take and into my account. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, and your <laughs> podcast, right? I'm actually I'm thinking about doing a video. Uh, I, I usually don't spoiler my videos before I put them out, but I am thinking about doing a video on whether uh, Chat GPT can prescribe good training or not. I tried to write a training plan with it, like, yeah. and I gave it a lot of detail. So I'm not sure how much you've played around with ChatGPT, but if you have a very iterative conversation with it, rather than just like, hey, write me a training plan, you need to give it a lot of context. Mm-hmm. But if you spend that sort of five, 10 minutes feeding in and giving it a lot of context, and then I asked it like something pretty specific. Like I was like, hey, can you write me a 12-week build period training plan for an 80-kilogram Cat 2 crit rider who's targeting this type of race with, these are like the requirements of the crit. It's a four-corner crit. It's flat, one incline. Like, mm-hmm. what's a training plan look like? And can you periodize it? And he has eight hours available per week. He has a family, so he's balancing multiple stress. It came out with a pretty good training plan. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, like, does your job then move from that of coach to that of validator? Because I know my background is law. And I've some friends would say to me, hey, would you have time to write me a legal contract on X? And my typical response is like, no, it just, it takes too long. It's like, it could be a day writing a contract. And as a favor, it's not like if you're an electrician, come over and just, you know, move a spanner around the job done. It's very time consuming. But with ChatGPT, you can put in like, hey, write me a tenancy agreement between person X and person Y look at it and go, okay, it's missing a clause on confidentiality and be like, hey, can you add a clause on confidentiality? Again, validate it and go, hey, can you make this applicable to Irish law? And it's unbelievable how it spits it out. 
Yeah. The one thing I will say about that is, is I, I've played around with chat GPT a little bit and I've had, f- I've had some friends tell me, I need to see if I can get chat GPT to do this as well. But I've had friends tell me that they've asked chat GPT for the research on certain things and chat GPT made up research that didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so it's human. I guess. Yeah. So I I will say that you got to be a little bit cautious. Yeah, I've seen if you push it on some things, Nick, say, hey, can you show me the source where you sourced that? And it'll go and say, well, I sourced it from here. Like, well, can you find out where they sourced it from? And if you trace it all the way down the rabbit hole, it'll just come back and say, oh, sorry, my apologies. uh, My initial statement was incorrect. And you're like, okay, well, that's not very useful to me because if I had a (laughs) run with that assumption at the start, now I look like a total idiot. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Dylan, It's been a blast. Thank you very much for joining me on the Roadmap Podcast. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.